Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has a goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 66 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we are celebrating 2022 coming to a close. It has been a big year for the podcast and for the book. I mean, the book was finally released in September of this year. And thank you to everyone that has supported that entire journey. It seemed like a long time coming when the book was released. And also thank you to those that bought the book. If you did buy and read the book, I would love it if you could take a few moments to review it on Amazon, Goodreads, or really wherever you bought it from. Reviews are so, so helpful in steering the right people to the book. And they're also a great way to provide me with feedback. Some other amazing things that have happened this year include my brother joining me as the audio editor on the show. Welcome, Alex. I mean, you joined us a while back, but <laughs> I will announce it again here as just a general recap of the year. It has been really fun working with him and he's helped the show grow in so many ways. So I'm just really thankful that we have a chance to work as a team. And more recently, we also had a family friend, Ethan Weiss, join the team as a media curator. Some new and exciting things are happening with the show and Outdoor Minimalist as a brand in 2023. And both Alex and Ethan are joining the team to help it all come together. I honestly could not do it without them. If you want to learn more about Alex and Ethan's background, head over to theoutdoorminimalist.com and check out the Meet the Team page. While I won't be sharing specific details or launch dates quite yet, I am happy to announce that we are finally launching an email newsletter in 2023. It has been such a long time since I've wanted to do an email newsletter, and I wish I would have done it a lot sooner. But in 2023, all the listeners can look forward to being able to subscribe to the newsletter. And the newsletter basically will provide a platform to help you stay up to date on all the latest episodes, any other cool updates that I might find about environmental news in the outdoor industry and updates on other content. I'll continue to focus posting informational content on the Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book. But one of the biggest and most exciting announcements that Outdoor Minimalist has in 2023 is that we will be launching a YouTube channel. This channel will include podcast episodes, some lifestyle content from yours truly, gear repair tips, and ways that I personally implement the Outdoor Minimalist methods into my daily life. I hope that you'll join us in 2023. So stay tuned for more updates on the newsletter and YouTube channel launch. Okay, back to the episode. So last year, I recorded a super fun radio sketch around this time called the Christmas tree display. If you're tuning in for more holiday themed content, then I recommend going back to listening to that to check it out. It's pretty short, but it's really fun and informative. Instead, this year, I wanted to celebrate 2022 coming to a close by recapping our top five episodes that were released this year. If this is your first time listening, this is a great place to start because you get to hear a few clips from each one, and then you can go back and hear the full episodes. Of the episodes that were released in 2022, these five had the most streams. 
Number one, Becoming Minimalist, Downsizing for Life, featuring Aaron Owens Mayhew from The Backcountry Foodie. In episode 40 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we discuss the process of becoming minimalist. Now, minimalism is very much an individual journey, but many people will experience overlapping challenges and hurdles along the way. And although I've talked about this in previous episodes to some extent, it's relatively surface level, I wanted to share a more in-depth experience beyond mine. So to share her story and give some practical advice on sustaining a minimalist lifestyle, I had the pleasure of hosting Erin Owens Mayhew. Erin is a registered dietitian and ultralight long distance backpacker with nearly 20 years of experience as a hiker and nutrition expert. In 2017, she quit her job and began preparing for her very first thru-hike. During this process, Erin realized how uniquely qualified she was to plan and prepare meals for outdoor athletes and decided to put her skills to the test. She founded Backcountry Foodie, an online ultralight recipes and planning platform that very same year. Since then, Erin has dedicated her career to helping thousands of hikers enjoy delicious food and improve their performance in the backcountry. She focuses on ultralight, low-volume recipes and meal plans specially formulated for endurance athletes. How did downsizing look in your life? Well, originally for the boat time, I had really just graduated from graduate school, so I didn't really own a lot of stuff anyway. So that wasn't as big of a deal just to sell like all my college furniture that really wasn't sentimental. You know, I hadn't collected that many things, so that wasn't as big a deal. Whereas moving into the van, I'd collected things for a long time. (laughs) So that had been collecting ever since the boat experience. So when we did decide to move into the van, we had one huge garage sale. And I was so embarrassed by the amount of stuff that we had that when we were moving it out into our carport at the house that we were renting at the time, that was like, I haven't seen this in five years. Like, what is this even? You know, I was still holding on to stuff from high school. Like, why am I holding on to this? Like, it just isn't meaningful for me. So letting go of those kinds of things was pretty easy. And actually, we downsized four more times after that while we were living in the van because we thought we would live in New Mexico and then we thought we'd live in Colorado. So we had a storage unit in each of those states as we kind of decided where we were going to live. So each time we're like, we don't feel like moving this again. So that's going into the garbage or recycling or, you know, Goodwill. So then we go to another storage unit. We're like, you know, we don't feel like moving it again. So that's going to go to Goodwill. Now we have only what's actually in our house right now, which is very, very little. (laughs) Yeah. So is that just what was in your van or did you end up getting a few things? Obviously, Um, probably, but... We're now on the central coast of California. When we moved here, I think we had a six by eight little U-Haul trailer behind the van. And it was mostly all of our sports gear, like our skis and bicycles and those kinds of things that didn't fit in the van. We did have kind of a winter selection of things and then a summer selection of things. So depending on the season, that's what got put into our garage in the van, which is underneath the bed. So that's all that we really brought with us. And the one sentimental item that Chris was just like, why are you carrying this around? is my grandfather's rocking chair that he made. So that is the one thing that has been with me since I was really young. So that didn't fit in the van. So we had to have to the trailer for the rocking chair so I could bring that with me. Yeah, those sentimental items, I feel like are hard to part from, yeah. but I mean, obviously it's very meaningful. So when you were doing that initial downsizing, you said that you had that big yard sale. And so did you get rid of all of your stuff then during that process or did you have to take other steps at all? No, that was the big clean out of things. And then we were still kind of attached to things. So we didn't know what the van life situation was going to be like. We didn't know, well, maybe we're going to need this or maybe we're going to need that because we weren't sure where in the country we were actually going to live. So that was just the, I know I had to use this. 
in this time period. And it actually ended up being two goodwill trips. There was so much stuff <laughs> that we got rid of, which was really embarrassing when you show up and people are in line at goodwill and they're like, come on, like how much stuff are you dropping yeah. off? Yes. So. I have experienced that with getting rid of things before too. Like if I do a big move or something mm-hmm. and you're like, this is a lot of things and I don't even know how I got all of this. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was, I was really embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even, like, I didn't even know I had this stuff. But what do you think was the easiest part about downsizing for you? Well, because I've done it before, I've always been kind of a purger with time. So I've always kind of had a personal rule. If I haven't used it in two years, I tend to get rid of it. There was more of the things that I thought sentimentally, because this is just my mom's very sentimental. So she's always hung on to things of our childhood and things of her childhood and that kind of thing. So it was more of the getting rid of like my high school jacket, my high school like swim towel, you know, all those kind of things that we don't have children. So I don't really have anyone to pass those things down to the probably wouldn't be sentimental anyway, because it was my high school things. So I would say those were the harder things to get rid of. Chris, my husband had never downsized before. So it was really hard for him to let go. And I will say now with him not here right now is I got rid of things for him without him knowing. So he didn't know until we got to here in California that I was like, oh, by the way, like you don't have your tennis shoes anymore. I got rid of those (laughs) way, way, way back when. (laughs) It is difficult. I think especially if you're doing that with a partner of some kind, because you might value like slightly different things or they might not want to be getting rid of so many things. I definitely have experienced that in my partnership. We definitely have have different views of minimalism but oh, for sure it's a great discussion point <laughs> i guess i guess now that you have more space available to you because are you living in a house we're now? renting a house now uh-huh. okay nice yeah how have you maintained that lifestyle because i found like when i transitioned from moving in vehicles like more often into an actual house i feel like i have always found things like even if they're used things or people would give me things and I just like accumulate, accumulate. So how have you maintained that minimalist lifestyle? It's actually, if somebody were to walk into our house, they'd probably think we're poor college students. <laughs> We've been here almost six months now and we still haven't bought the first piece of furniture. So we actually took the mattress that was in the van or sleeping on that on the floor in her bedroom with no other furniture because we don't need a dresser. The only clothes that we have fit in the closet. And we didn't need to buy any more clothes because we've been living with the same clothes for two and a half years. And then it's a 1500 square foot house. It's enormous. So my dog is actually free to roam around all of the place now (laughs) and has four bedrooms, but three of those are offices. We both work from home full time. This is actually really nice. Now I do have the space to have a printer, my computer monitors and things. So I've actually really enjoyed having an actual desk being in the house now, whereas in the van, we had to pack up everything every day. We'd had to share a little table. So now my husband has an office with a desk and chair, but there's no filing cabinets. There's no lamps. There's nothing else but a desk and a chair. And then the other bedroom is what we call the foodie lab, which now has probably the most furniture in it because it has my freeze dryer on a table, um, shielding units for all my dehydrators and ingredients and all those kinds of things. And then our camp table that we've had in the van, I have my vacuum sealer on and some other things that I do for like photo shoots. So that's actually where most of the furniture is. We don't own a couch. We found that we really only sit down two hours a day. So I don't need a couch. We sit on the floor for a few hours. Um, and I really, I have no intention of buying anything else anytime soon. The only thing we really bought when we moved in were kitchen appliance things or yeah. kind of silverware because we're eating on our titanium camp bowls and cups and those kinds of things in the van. So we actually bought ceramic plates, a set of four. That's it. We bought glassware, like glass bowls, because I was mm-hmm. cooking in plastic and I'm trying not to cook in plastic anymore. Yeah. So like stainless mixing bowls, 
But other than that, we haven't bought anything. No pictures for the walls, no lamps, no, that's it. <laughs> it's a really empty house and I don't mind. Number two, are we loving the land to death? Featuring Tom Sadler. Are we loving the land to death? This question comes up time and time again with folks I talk to on and off of the podcast, and many professionals in the outdoor industry likely wonder the same thing. In episode 21 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we are going to explore this topic through the lens of conservation and political engagement. To help guide me through this discussion, I'm excited to introduce Tom Sadler. Tom Sadler is a deputy director of the Marine Fish Conservation Network. He is also the national capital correspondent for Mountain Journal. Sadler has an extensive history of promoting conservation through advocacy and communication. Sadler is an award-winning journalist with awards from the Outdoor Writers Association of America and the Virginia Outdoor Writers Association. He has served on the boards of numerous fly fishing, conservation, and journalism organizations. Sadler spent 14 years as a public affairs officer in the United States Navy Reserve. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of New Hampshire. A lifelong fly fisherman who, in his free time, guides and teaches for Mossy Creek Fly Fishing in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He and his wife, Beth, live with their family in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. From being outdoors and and then to to protecting them, I think what we're talking about really is a mindset that includes four elements. It includes responsibility. It includes includes sacrifice. It includes balance. And it includes perspective. And, you know, I, I think if you're if your audience is thinking about, okay, so how do I do this? You know, how do I translate what I care about? Think about it this way. Think about it from the perspective of the resource or the landscape or the waterscape. When we recreate, when we, whatever that means, we have an impact. Now, of course, we think about that impact as individuals, right? How is that impacting me as an individual, whether it's fishing or, or hiking or whatever, we think about it in, as an individual. But I would argue that it's extremely important if we are going to protect these outdoor spaces, if we're going to make our outdoor recreation sustainable, then we have to look at it from a different perspective. And that's the perspective of the land, the water, or the resource. And our impact on that is likely to be very different than the impact it has on, our, on, on ourselves, right? It is... In many respects, those impacts wound the resource or the landscape. And I use that word wound because it connotes that there can be a recovery, but it also that it leaves some marks. You know, wounds can heal, but there's always, always a cost. And what I've come to, to learn and what I would hope to impart to your audience is that we should strive to recognize that there is a cost and balance in our outdoor recreation. And we need to find that balance. And, and part of finding that balance, and this is the hard thing, Meg, is we have to, have to make a sacrifice. We have to understand that if we're going to enjoy those places in the future, and, and we, here's where I pull back to Roosevelt's comment about the womb, womb of time, those future generations. As a, as a grandfather, I think about the opportunities that my grandchildren have. And really, that forms my core thinking about why I'm going to get involved in outdoor recreation advocacy. 
So what that means as we're looking at this going forward, when we're looking at rules and regulations for the use of the outdoors, we have to recognize, and I know people aren't going to like to hear this, but we're going to have to sacrifice some of that on the altar of the common good. And I don't know how to put it more, more frankly, that, that that's, a, that's, the, that's the price we pay for having a democracy, having the, the democracy that we live in. And it's our responsibility to recognize that and, where necessary, make those sacrifices. Number three, pee rags, menstrual cups, and more. Featuring Angie Marie from The Hormone Hacker. It's episode 17, and in this episode, we're going to talk about a topic that I think is applicable to everyone, whether or not you experience a menstrual cycle. The focus will be on pee rags, menstrual cups, and more in the backcountry. Topics regarding hygiene, peeing, and menstrual cups in general, I think are really, really important to understand and have some knowledge of, even if you're not the one experiencing them yourself. It could be, I don't know, you're a dad and you want to be there for your daughter while you're backpacking. Maybe you're a scout leader in a mixed gendered group or you work in the outdoor industry and you simply want to be more inclusive of your understanding of everyone's outdoor experiences. Even having a better understanding of your partner when you're out in the woods can go a long way in your relationship dynamics during that trip. So all of that to say, this episode is for everyone, not just assigned at birth females. Now, I'm an advocate for reusables in all aspects of your life, but in the backcountry, reusable menstrual cups can be an interesting topic that is uncomfortable for some individuals to discuss openly. To help me reframe the conversation and give all people more confidence when talking about all things menses, I'd like to introduce Angie Marie. Angie Marie is your hormone hype gal and hiking partner with the best snacks. As a fertility awareness educator with An Adventurous Edge, she helps athletic and outdoorsy people interpret their bodies and use the menstrual cycle to feel strong and confident as they get after their goals. Angie teaches people to harness their natural physiology to boost performance and strengthen the mind-body connection through courses at thehormonehacker.com. So I think when it comes to being a menstruator in the outdoors, You have to think about this during like the plan ahead and prepare, leave no trace principle. I think we really need to normalize the idea that many of us have periods when we're outside. And that's something that needs to be supported by guides. If you're on a guided trip, they should plan for and accommodate the potential that people might be on their periods. It should be in packing lists orientation materials. If companies, guiding companies could just add a section about what happens if I get my period while on this trip, it would ease a lot of anxiety for people for whom that's a possibility. So the way that I see outdoor periods being minimalist is to find a system that works for you and sticking to that and just finessing it over time. So your system with having your period in the outdoors might be different than others, but it's a system you've dialed down and you've practiced that you're not wasting whatever supplies you've decided on. So I would basically recommend four different steps to creating your backcountry period setup. And the first is to learn your options. Like you said, there are pros and cons to all your period management options in the outdoors. And I can talk about those. And then I can talk about organizing your kit so that you're taking your supplies with you in a convenient and comfortable way. We can talk about practicing your method and then being a steward in the environment, no matter which method you choose. So the first step when it comes to being uh, an outdoor menstruator is to learn your options. There are plenty of options for collecting period blood and disposing your menstrual fluid. 
And depending on your personal preference, it might look different. I am personally team menstrual cup. I have been team menstrual cup now for uh, uh, probably seven plus years. And I actually discovered it when I was a river guide and I was looking for an easier, lower waist option to have my period in the backcountry. The menstrual cup definitely takes a little bit of practice. Uh, You might, again, practice inserting it and taking it out in the shower before you take it out on a backpacking trip just so that you can make sure you're comfortable. A cup I like better than tampons because they're more affordable over time. They're more comfortable. I don't chafe with a period cup and they're easier to clean once you practice because you don't have to dispose of them in the way that you dispose of tampons. They also take up less space, less weight. So if you ha- if you're a little bit resistant to trying a cup, maybe just give it a shot. You can find maybe a cheap option to start with. I know some people are brand loyal. I have personally found that I can get away with a cheaper silicone cup. I don't need the most expensive brand name on the market. If you're stuck on where to start with a cup, I would recommend the web the website putacupinit.com and it can help walk you through the um, purchasing options so that you can find one that works for you and your cervix and vagina. I had one question about the the menstrual cups in choosing the right one. Like that's a really good resource that you shared. But is it really kind of up to the person trial and error wise, like finding the right one that won't leak, that fits comfortably? Or are there other places people can go to to kind of get recommendations for their shape and flow? So if you have an OBGYN or you go to a naturopath, some healthcare provider who is qualified and say giving you a pap smear or just looking at your cervix, they're a great resource to ask because they can see whether your uterus is tilted. They can see, you know, whether you've given, they know whether or not you've given birth before, which might change what type of cup is good for you. So definitely talking to your healthcare provider and saying, hey, I'm interested in trying a menstrual cup. Do you have a recommendation based on my body? They would be an excellent first step. Something that I learned years into using a cup is that 25% of the of people with uteruses actually have a tilted uterus or a retroflexed or retroverted uterus. And they might find just based on the way that the cup lies against a tilted uterus, it might leak more. And a hack for that is to actually turn your menstrual cup inside out. And that will change the suction around your cervix and prevent leaks that way. And that actually works for me. That was a game changer. So if you're like me and one of the 25% of people with tilted uteruses, try turning your cup inside out. And that might be the only change you need. You might not even need a new cup. Number four, building a daily outdoor habit featuring Amy Bouchatz from Humans Outside. In episode 36 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we discuss how you can start building outdoor time into your daily life and how spending more time outdoors is not only good for you, but it could be good for the planet too. So to help me do that, I had the pleasure of hosting Amy Bouchatz. Amy is the host of the Humans Outside podcast, a project inspired by her ongoing personal experiment to test what happens if you spend a certain amount of time outside every single day. With more than 1,600 days of the habit logged and counting, Amy shares her experiences and connects listeners with inspiring outdoor-minded guests from her home in Palmer, Alaska. Amy and her husband, Luke, are joined on their outdoor adventures by their two sons and two dogs. 
Yeah. So I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that when all is rosy, when the weather is good, when the sun is shining, getting outside every day sounds like a super good idea and really easy. My friends and I like to run. We joke that all of the races that we plan or sign up for, all of those decisions are made on a sunny day because no one sits in their house in January. It's like, oh, I think I'll run a race in sub-zero temperatures. Why would you do that? No, you sign up on a sunny day in September when you think, oh man, that sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> okay, so first of all, that is absolutely true, right? That everything's easy when the sun is shining and the weather is nice. But that's not how a habit works, right? The point of it being a habit is that you have to push through something hard because if it was easy the whole time, you wouldn't have to work for it. So for me, there are three things, three steps for making a habit work. Okay. First is I set a goal that I would actually do. There is a reason I made that 20 minutes, consecutive minutes every day, because I knew that I would never make time for 45. Never. I would make time for 20, though. 20 sounds like a reasonable amount of time. And when I looked at my life and my schedule, I knew that I was burning 20 minutes scrolling through Facebook every evening mindlessly, just like probably most people do. So I thought, you know what? I can take that time, use it to go outside. I can scrape that together. That's fine. So I picked a goal that I would actually do something attainable. And then I started doing it by using intrinsic rewards to make it happen. So going outside, there's a reason we all like to do it. It makes us feel good. So when you do something that has that, it's like a carrot on a stick at the end that you know, at the end of this, you will be glad you did it. And you experience that reward several times. So let's say the first day of your habit, the second day of your habit, the third day of your habit, sunny outside, right? Very pleasant day. You're thinking, oh, I could do this forever. Your brain is saying, and this feels great. And this was really fun. And we feel really good night now. We're looking forward to tomorrow. We like this habit. So now let's say day four, day five, not so nice. Very windy, <laughs> terrible weather, whatever. Your brain says, okay, this not good. But remember the last time we did this, we felt really good at the end. It was sunny and warm and, and that was good. We just felt great because we went outside. So now you have the perseverance because you had that reward before to push through a little bit and find that reward at the end of the harder time. The more you do that, the more you know that reward is there. So now, yes, oh my goodness, yes, there are so often days that I do not want to go outside. Some of them were this week. But I know, one, it's been more than 1,600 days. I cannot break the habit now. That's ridiculous. Two, I know that it's going to have a reward at the end because I've experienced the reward before. So finally, the third thing to creating this habit is to find the time to keep doing it. And one of the ways is just good time management by getting rid of stuff you don't need to be doing. So this is not quite the minimalism you talk about on this podcast, but I'm going to use the word anyway, minimalizing stuff you're doing to make time for the things you find more important. Yeah. So then you can kind of replace maybe something that's not adding as much of that value that you're talking about with something like this. Exactly. So maybe less time on social media. <laughs> Precisely. So, I mean, do I spend 20 minutes a day scrolling Facebook in one minute or 30 second increments? Well, I know I do because Apple comes with this stupid screen time feature now that tells you at the end of the week how much time you wasted on your phone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's annoying slash beneficial. Yes. So if you looked at that in the aggregate, thought about how much of that each day, and then simply 
didn't do that, but went outside instead, what would you find? That's the question. Number five, and finally, one of my personal favorite episodes, Identifying Your Needs, Adventure, Gear, and Safety, featuring Moose Mutlow. In episode 24 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we are going to be talking about needs. More specifically, we will discuss personal needs when it comes to adventure, outdoor gear, and safety. During COVID-19, we saw a dramatic influx of new outdoor enthusiasts. This is great for many reasons, but it also means that there's a lot more people entering outdoor spaces, sometimes with very little knowledge of how to interact with landscapes safely and responsibly. Even if you're not completely new to outdoor recreation, maybe you're like me and you got into a new sport in the last couple of years. Anytime I start something new, I always go through a research and discovery process. This might look different for different people, but for me, I like to figure out what I might need, talk to people that are more experienced than me, and try things out a few times. That allows me to add gear gradually as I go. I've found that getting hyper-focused on the gear alone has its pros and cons, and in my experience, I've found it to be more detrimental just to be focusing on gear than not. I could likely rant and rave about outdoor gear and equipment, marketing, and the psychology of shopping for quite some time. But instead, I'll let my friend Moose Mutlow take the lead. Moose Mutlow has been active in the outdoors for more than 30 years as an instructor and guide. Currently based in Yosemite National Park, he is the Senior Project Director for NatureBridge, the largest provider of environmental education in the U.S. National Park System. He has a long history of working in search and rescue and is a senior trainer for the National Park Service. The best way to start a new activity is to get friends. And by that, I mean, I think one of the struggles now within the outdoor world is having active mentorship and apprenticeship. When I started in the outdoors, I had a lot of people who knew more than me that I was tagging along with, who helped show me the way and help me understand what I needed to do and help me build judgment. But they also had a lot of gear. So when I was boating, they would lend me a PFD, like a flotation device, before I actually needed to buy one so I could figure out what it felt like. Or clubs were in a position for me to start experimenting with different bits of equipment and understanding how that sort of what I needed for a starting gear. But it all came from personal connection and, and people. And I think that that's the place to start, is not to feel isolated, is to find the club and the mentorship where you can be part of it because the practitioners there, I will guarantee you have a closet full of great gear that they're holding on to that with a little bit of a chat, we'll, we'll start sharing it and loaning it and potentially giving it. You see it with skiing the whole time that when people need a new set of skis or they need skis to start with, there's somebody who's like, I've got a set from last year, but I bought this new set this year because I got more side cut. Here, I'll give you them for X and it's significantly less. And I, I like that. So the place to start is always going to be in connection. It's going to be with other people. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that has been how I have definitely succeeded in pursuing new outdoor activities. Like 
I really enjoy cycling, but I don't have a mountain bike, but a lot of my friends mountain bike. And whenever I go to different places, it always ends up that someone has a mountain bike in my size that I can borrow. And it has been really convenient. And now it definitely has kind of pushed me to identify some of the pieces of those types of bikes that I like to the different ones that I borrowed. In some areas I did end up renting, but I think it also gives you a chance to kind of like try out some of your different options before just like going all in and investing in something that you may or may not really like. Right. And I had the, I had this conversation with somebody. I had a I, I rode bike and I mountain bike and I and I done expedition biking and I really enjoy it. I'm not a gearhead and I'm definitely not a mechanic. I know enough to sort of do basic repairs. And this person saw a bike and they started talking about the ring sizes on the front, how many teeth they're on and what he liked to do with his gears. And this is the different sets you want to. He must have done like a 15 minute chat about this thing. And he was really passionate about it. And he goes, what do you think? And I just said to him, I don't know what you're talking about. And the thing about it is that he really enjoys cycling and gets it done. And I really enjoy talk, like cycling and getting it done. And there's definitely a place I could be better on the education. But you don't have to know all that detail to appreciate being out there and doing the activity. I hear you hear climbers talk about it as being the spray zone where people are just blurting out what they've climbed and what they've done and how they've done. And it's so boring. It's so fantastically dull. And like, who cares if there's a crimpy thing? Three, there's, there's maybe two people who care about that crimpy hold up on the right. I'm much more interested about the four ravens sitting on the top of the crag, taking it in turns to do somersaults because there's an updraft there and like them watching each other. It's like we all have different appreciations, but gear can be gear talking about gear is so reductive it gets to a point where you just reduce the people listening around you and you kind of you formed a little exclusive club it's not very welcoming i just want to say thank you again to all of our loyal listeners and to everyone that has recently joined us if you'd like to listen to the full version of any of the episodes that were featured in our 2022 recap they're all available anywhere you listen to podcasts and they'll soon be available on YouTube. So thanks again. We wouldn't be here without all of you, and I can't wait to see what we create together. And with that, enjoy the rest of your 2022 season and have a happy new year.